PP M Trench on Pi Radio, Manchester's number one Newford radio station. I thought you were going to say something else then. I thought you were going to say my workplace. I was like, what? <laughs> well, it's not all about you, Halima. Yeah, Speaking of not being all about you, you might turn that fan off. I know it's hot in here. Oh, is it? But I've we can hear it on it the record off. at the back, yeah. It is boiling up here. It guys. is boiling. There we bye go. Bye fans. A lot more professional. Sweltering, but professional. Yeah, true. How does it feel, Halima? By the way, this is Mango Masala, the South Asian show. Halima's here, and she's in the DJC. How does it feel? I am. I'm not going to lie. I always was very intimidated of being on the seat. Like, mm-hmm. I just never wanted to be here, but, yeah, it feels good. Look yeah. at me. I'm the captain now. <laughs> I'm actually terrified. <laughs> um, a special guest for the first half of today's episode is Mr. Martin Iwoma. For those of you who don't know, (laughs) Martin and I are actually BFF WNEs, which is which is best friend forever with no exception. (laughs) Um, But the first few times Martin was on the show, unfortunately, I just couldn't make it. Slacking, slacking. So this is mine and Martin's show. Welcome to the Halima and Martin show. Okay, right. I've probably been demoted now. I'm like not in the DJ seat. But Martin, how are you? I'm really good, thanks, mate. I think you're on mute, babe. No, it's not on mute. Is he not on mute? I don't have my headphones on. (laughs) Oh my god, I'm such a moron. Sorry. Not sure you're ready for the DJ seat, you know. Sorry, man. Sorry. I'm actually not. I'm just. I just. I'm here for entertainment, not for production. Oh my gosh. I'm here to pick up the pieces. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> anyway, Martin, thank you. I'm glad um, during the music break, I was saying Martin had gone for his same um, video background they'd had for the past two episodes. The fir- Well, the first one was a beach. The second one was like the Northern Lights. He'd gone for the Northern Lights again. I was saying like, you need to give us something else. And now you're in space, which I presume is because you'd rather <laughs> be there than here right now. Oh, <laughs> a segue. Yeah. <laughs> God, that was expert you done, yeah? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Take me with you, mate. Yeah. I mean, we're going to get on to why we're feeling like that this week, because um, we have a new thing every week as to why we're not very happy. Um, but for the people listening who might not have heard the episodes before where you've been on, do you mind just giving us a little bit of background about yourself? Um, yeah, so I work mainly as a creative director, photographer, writer and stylist. So in terms of my writing, it tends to be about like politics, sociology and that kind of thing. So the past few times I've been on my Masai, it's been kind of discussing socio-political issues. Mm-hmm. So I think the first episode was about William and Kate's disastrous foray into the Caribbean to try and do something to before the Jubilee. Yeah. And then, <clears throat> God, that, that was bad, wasn't it? <laughs> so much has happened since then, it's crazy. Like, how, yeah. yeah. So Martin Awoma, uh, writer, photographer, full-time sexy boy. Welcome uh, to the show. What what's got what what what's happened to you? <laughs> this is just Martin's mind. I just realised that this is Martin and mind's dynamic. I just actually realised that. Hang on, wait a minute. That like people actually aren't aware of what we're like. Martin's been very professional every time I've spoken to him by myself. Thank you very much. He's composing himself right now, mm. but you lot don't know what he's actually like. That's uh, all I'm going to say. No comment. Mm. Anyways, fine, I'll, I'll gather myself too. Yeah. <laughs> DAB radio, you know. If I must. Yeah. Anyway, so let's get on to the topic of discussion today. So, 
Let's start with the positives, right? Right. To what, a certain what extent. Are them? Right. We've got to take what we can. The flight to Rwanda that was meant to happen okay, on yeah, Tuesday true. evening didn't end up happening, which true. is obviously good because it means that the I think it was eight people that were going to be deported to Rwanda, um, asylum seekers in the UK, yeah. no necessarily relation to Rwanda, literally just mm -hmm. the fact that they're asylum seekers in the UK and Priti Patel has signed this deal with Rwanda. Um, got stopped last minute. I think they they were either on the plane. Yeah, the plane, I think the they were. They the, were on the plane, I think. The plane was certainly on the tracks, like, ready to go. Yeah. Um, which just shows that I don't think anyone can really argue that this is just, like them um the people that are advocating for this talking trying to big things up because i saw someone on twitter try to compare it to trump and the wall and say like oh like this is just an example of people trying to show off bravado and i was like well someone replied to it saying well no the plane is literally on the tracks ready to go like, and also that's just a projection <laughs> of their own intentions like okay maybe you do it for like performativity mm. but actually this really matters to some people you yeah know? Mm. I yeah. think to me what was very bizarre about that in IG, it was actually, I think it was a column in The Observer, and it was someone saying, oh, Trump's wall was only ever a metaphor. What was particularly odd about that is that Trump's wall was also not a metaphor. Like, much of the wall was constructed, loads of people did die at the border, and ICE had been detaining people and ripping apart families for years. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. arguing something was a metaphor by comparing it to something else that also was not a metaphor. Mm -hmm. And we say this all the time, don't we? Like, a lot of people engage in politics only through, like, um, abstraction. Like, it's really just abstract for them. It's all theory. It, it stays contained no. within the walls in which they're sitting when they're having these discussions. They don't actually realise that for a lot of people, it's, it's actually real life. You know? Of course. I mean, planes, planes and walls are very tangible, physical things. <laughs> like, yeah. Mm -hmm. Members of you actually encountered or interacted with them in our actual lives. Yeah, exactly. Like, exactly. Both some of, like, political aphorism was, was very strange to me. Yeah. But I think, as you say, it, it sort of speaks for a lot of people's relationship with politics being abstractions. Um, and I think what's been really disturbing for me about a lot of surrounding this in the liberal media is that people are kind of seeing this issue through the prism of what it means to their own Britishness or something. Even a lot of people who have been condemning the policy have been looking at it from the perspective of what this says about Britain or how far we've fallen, etc, etc. Which, just from a factual point of view, is baseless. There's no real deterioration of British values or border policy or relationship with the rest of the world. For anyone who understands history beyond like a year eight level but furthermore were it the case the idea that something's wrong because of how it makes you feel about the epistemology of your country more so than the fact that people are dying is insane to me and also actually like like if you look at british history and british policy and british politics it's not an aberration it's very much in line with what British policy and politics is right like if anything it's odd that it took this long to get here yeah exactly mm. well I saw um, obviously Martin you've written a number of pieces for Sludge Mag I saw a post on their Instagram the other day um, which sort of detailed not even the full extent of the history but like the last 30 years or so basically yeah. saying like I think it started off with Tony Blair. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it's something to do with when he was in power up until yeah. now and how this really isn't something that's like, 
oh, how did we get here? It's been very much been a sentiment that has been building up. And like you say, it's a shock that it hasn't happened before now. Um, so, yeah, I, I know obviously one of the reasons you wanted to come on here was to talk about, like, obviously it's like, how did we get here? But like, to a certain extent, how did we get here? Like, what what um, stuff before this has been a definite precedent to the flights to Rwanda that is that, that are actually yeah. happening? Okay, I think it, mainly you talk about this. So it, it can be difficult sometimes when you're talking about contemporary political issues, how far to go back. Because on the one hand, most things that happen now are kind of situated within you know the tapestry of politics that's been in the making for hundreds of years. On the flip side, if you want people to be able to understand contemporary politics, it needs to be situated within, you know, at least worldwide events that they've lived through or have some understanding of. So just for the purpose of this, I'd say we should probably start in about 1997. So when Tony Blair was kind of up for election um, around 97, uh, this kind of like big rhetoric was that, you know, the Labour Party can't be trusted they're not a responsible party of government. So a part of the whole essence of new Labour was to create a Labour party that was actually electable. So in terms of making a party electable within Britain, unfortunately, a big part of that is dog whistling racists. For whatever reason, you're not going to win an election. And yes, real politics are at least palatable to racists because that makes up a massive part of the electorate. So. There was a case of a few hundred people from, I don't know what the nations were called at the time, but what are now the Czech Republic and Czech and Slovakia, they weren't that at the time, I don't think. Yugoslavia. Uh, no, it was after, because it was in 97. Let's just say people from like those okay. states, people from those places washed up on the shores of Dover and were granted asylum completely legally because of the fallout from the Balkan Wars. Mm-hmm. Um, so to anyone who understands refugee politics, it's it's a non-story. People were entitled to claim asylum, they sought asylum, were granted refugee status, should be a pretty open and shut thing. But the nature of the right wing media is such that, as you can imagine, the mail, the sun, the telegraph started winning stories about how we were going to become infested and overrun with loads more people from this part of the world. And because these nations were entering the EU, part of the deal would be free movement across Europe. So it was kind of a conflation which we've seen pre-Ithwell over the past 20 years of refugees and migration, which are not the same thing at all. But because, you know, a bunch of people granted asylum, the Ryman media used that to whip up fear with migrants, despite it not being the same issue. So Tony Blair at this time, obviously going up for election, had kind of two options. He could either change the assertion that asylum-seeking and migration are the same thing, which probably wouldn't play well with xenophobes or the right media, or go along with it and kind of like align himself with the moral panic surrounding this supposed influx of people. It's, you know, no prizes for guessing which one he did. So in 2002, he wrote um, a letter to the then leader of, uh, again, I don't want to say the Czech Republic, because I'm not sure if that's what it was, but that country basically um, describing the influx of people from his country to Britain as um, an unacceptable situation. He also sent border patrol officials to a Prague airport to ethnically profile Roma people to deter them from getting planes to Britain. So he very much aligned himself with the kind of 
anti-migrant, anti-refugee, anti-asylum seeker kind of like cacophony of xenophobic nonsense that has gone on to punctuate politics for the past 20 years. So we continue on from that and then with the 2008 crash, as always happens in terms of economic scarcity, it leads to rises in fascism, xenophobia, racism, all these ideologies, because people who don't understand the effects of neoliberalism and capitalism properly only have, you know, things that they can see in their immediate lives, a frame of reference for why economic scarcity happens. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in 2008, if on the one hand you're seeing global recessions or your sort of circumstances getting worse, and at the same time, because of migration through the Eurozone, you're seeing more immigration, if you have no further contextual understanding of economics, a rise in pride and a rise in immigration, confirmation bias would tell you that those two things are somehow congruent or co-constitutive when we either have nothing to do with each other, which is just decades of post-war neoliberalism and capitalism. Mm-hmm. But again, for politicians, you can either challenge racist assertions and try and have more nuanced discussions about economics and politics, which would make you responsible for these things and would damage your ability to, you know, get elected, or, you know, just go along with racist sensibilities. So after 2008, naturally people did that again, giving rise to populist figures like Na- uh, Nigel Farage, who since 2004 had been kind of bubbling with the supposed influx of Roma people, figures like Tommy Robinson, Nick Griffiths, Katie Hopkins, mm-hmm. and that kind of culminated in, you know, very public racist politics becoming palatable as the EDO became more and more successful. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Then we get to, I think, 2011 or so, when Theresa May soft launches the hostile environment. Oh, 2012, when she sends those vans around London with go home or face the rest um, billboards. Um, again, go further and further um, to the campaigning surrounding Brexit. Um, you know, Sajid Javid again uh, removing the citizenship of Shamir mm-hmm. Bacon. So it's sort of a situation where as you know economic decisions like austerity make things worse and worse economically mm-hmm. because people don't understand of stuff like that mm-hmm. the politics have to become more racist and xenophobic to yeah. appease people who believe that minority ethnicities are the reason mm-hmm. that some economic plight is happening yeah so now after the fallout from covid um britain doing the worst out of energy seven economy as having the prime minister who that's some story for the day, but let's just say Pilate is completely inept and um, and toothless opposition. Obviously, economically, things are going to get worse and worse, as we're seeing with the cost of living crisis. So, as we've seen over the past 20 years, and I've been, you know, sort of explaining, as things get worse economically, racist politics have to rise to kind of meet people in the middle, because that's what they believe is causing the problem, mm-hmm. hence the Rwanda policy. <clears throat> yeah. It's very mad actually and to be honest like that you've just given like a really really clear really like comprehensive um kind of like explanation of what's been happening over the past two decades but actually like and and you said it before it's really hard to know where to start and this this where you started is very much kind of like the 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 right now right here today's rendering of what we this kind of xenophobia we're seeing but um it's an interesting one, right? Because when you think about nationalism, for example, which is like the ideological underpinning of all of this, right? One of the 
originary ideological assumptions of nationalism is that it's exclusionary, right? There's always um, a hegemony, a dominant group, and then those who don't fit in are excluded, right? That That is literally how nationalism works. And every country has their own form of nationalism. And what we're seeing, like, iterations of xenophobia exist in, like, every single country, right? But the reason why I personally think that Britain is a very unique example is because of the specific um, history of empire right there's there's a very historical specificity here that um where britain i don't think can get away with i mean no one really could, should get away with kind of exclusionary nationalism and xenophobia but britain especially right um because it's not just any other country it is britain was in 1920 the height of its empire was and ha- like to this day has been the largest empire that the country has ever seen in history right um like fact so Britain is very much a like global metropole, you know. And um, from when I wasn't, when I was doing my master, it was my, not my masters, when I was doing my undergrad, um, I did English and I did one module called Crime, Nation, and Empire. And be, and this was like in the 18th and 19th century. So we were looking at texts like, you know, some of your guys' faves, Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie, them man there, you know, and we were going, like, we were studying these books and saying how they, they're, like, well, they're basically racist, but it's all within the realm of, like, nation and empire. And and all of these books, right, there's always this one running theme, which was, like, the fear of invasion, right? Like, into the metropole, like, from the colonies into the metropole, Um so this kind of like ideology has been around since the time of empire it's been around like from when these men created racism right um and yeah i I just think it's funny like when britain are so have such rigid like um racist immigration policies because it's like you actually went and colonized a quarter of the world what did you think was gonna happen and I always say this, like, growing up, a lot of my family were immigrants and um, a lot of my family also tried to come to England and they couldn't. Like, my grandma can't even get, like, a visitor visa here. And I find it really ironic because she was born a British subject, right? Like, she's never stepped foot out of Bangladesh, but she was born a British subject. She was born under British rule. People look at, like, there's there's a specific kind of, like, immigration here as well in terms of, like, common from people from the Commonwealth, like the diaspora of the Commonwealth, where it's very much like you don't belong here and there's so many efforts to, you know, deport these people. And it's like, me and my ancestors were British 400 years before any of us set foot on British soil, because you man went over there and made us British British subjects. Mm. So like to now have this kind of such rigid policy to bend themselves over backwards to invest no doubt millions, I don't know how much of pounds into like deporting these people and not making space for these people. What did they think was going to happen when they went and just took claim on a quarter of the Earth's land. Well, I think, obviously, this isn't me saying, well, in their defence, but I think probably they thought that they were going to be undefeatable, right? They didn't, well, absolutely. They, 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 didn't, they didn't even think that, like, oh, one day we're maybe not going to be able to afford to be able to do it, so we're not going to be able to resist all these uprisings, etc. And you thought, oh, we're British, we can yeah. just... And it's one thing as well, I know I'm speaking very specifically about, like, um, British, like, the Commonwealth migration and immigration and whatever else, but it's one thing to have empire, and it's another thing to create and maintain the Commonwealth. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, you might just couldn't let it go. 
This is what, I mean, obviously you've got the Commonwealth Games coming up, and to me, I just always find it a bit weird, the fact that it's like, it's literally called the Commonwealth Games, you know what I mean? Like, what, even if, obviously, we say that colonialism doesn't exist anymore, to a certain extent, the fact that common, the Commonwealth still, still exists, honestly, yeah, yeah. Like, sometimes you know I, mean? I think about the fact that the Commonwealth exists and I'm like, oh my God, is everyone crazy? Barbados, great job. <laughs> Jamaica, apparently the they're, now, they're yeah. now on the way. The whole world needs to take a leaf out of the Caribbean's book. Mm. I feel like, again, as I was saying at the beginning, as much as all of this is kind of brave and it's so difficult to talk about the Rwanda policy about going further and extrapolating and extracting it to all these other issues, I do just think in terms of focus, in as much as we could remain talking about the UK's current border policy, mm. it's probably more proactive just in the sense that at the moment we do have something of a fight on our hands to protect people in the here and now. Yeah, definitely. So I think it's really important to look at the success of the direct action against not only Rwanda, but Britain's sort of violent, excusingly border practices over the yeah, past mm-hmm. few years. Because there's other examples. I think it was Glasgow where an immigration raid was halted by community members who just didn't want one of their neighbours to be taken away. We've seen similar action um, in London over the past couple of yeah, years. Yeah, yeah, there was one, there was a similar one, like I think two weeks ago in, I want to say Dalston, like Hackney so, Dalston, yeah. Um, yeah. Which is like, I think they're really important examples to look at because sometimes like when we think about the fact that, okay, we're up against a state, a whole state, a whole government, it can feel really overwhelming and and you can just feel completely hopeless and helpless. But, you know, someone put it really succinctly that the night when all the reports were coming on about when they stopped the flight, there was like, if one flight can be stopped, every single flight can be stopped. Right. And I and I think that that's exactly the mindset and the ideology that we need to have. Sometimes we believe that the government's say is final and that is just not the case. Right. Mm-hmm. I think for me, what this can be kind of, I don't know if I go so far as to say that Silviana would say a positive, a positive aspect can be drawn from something so horrible. But if there is something proactive to take from it, I think it's kind of... I miss you like this showcases the importance of community organising and the co-constitutions between different issues. Because I think what's what's central to kind of like racist policies is an effort to kind of erode class solidarity. Yeah. 100%. When we perceive, you know, excuse me, border practices as a race issue and then we'll consider, I don't know, what's going on now with the trade unions as a sort of like class issue, as if these things don't don't, you know, co-constitute each other. We're kind of killing ourselves in terms of understanding the power we have as collective units. Mm-hmm. So for me, I think what this should be evidence of is the fact that whilst a lot of people conceive a state as something they're a part of, or they conceive politicians to be people who represent them, a situation like this, or so many situations where it's the people having to community organise against what the state's doing, should be a vehicle for everyone, no matter what their positionality is, to become more critical of state action. Because if we look at, you know, the food poverty issue, for example, with Marcus Rashford and then restaurant owners up and down the country stepping in to say, okay, we'll feed children over the half term or whatever it may be, it's a very similar ideology now to direct action against deportation for us and things like this. So I think, for me, I think what could be beneficial if we are as a result of this is one, people critiquing how much affinity have to the state, whether it be the PE state, the Home Office, MPs, whatever it may be, I think that's really useful. And also seeing how much power we have when we kind of, you know, organise as communities in that sense. Mm. 
Mm-hmm, 100%. I think sometimes we forget, right? Like, especially because Western society is so individualistic and also capitalism, because exactly what Martin has just described here is what you call Marxist praxis, right? That's literally the entire basis of Marxism is community organising, right? Um, and sometimes it's really easy to to forget that that we are actually we are part of an, uh, a community um, and that we can access and bolster that community and that we're not just alone um, I know me personally when these you know like when a, a, there's a new issue every single day but like when something like this does happen I do get really kind of like I, it's very easy to become defeatist and I definitely do I think like oh my god I'm one person what can I do I can't do anything in that moment it's, part, it's important to remember you are a cog in a much larger machine right and and that you if you feel like you can't do anything yourself lean on your community bolster your community and it's the community that will make the change so i 100 percent agree so in terms of looking forward obviously i think one thing that we've tried to take from today is that whilst obviously this is in our opinion well in a lot of politicians opinion as well a totally lack of compassion act totally disgusting in our opinion um (laughs) whilst we whilst obviously not taken away from that we shouldn't um be focusing on this as like oh this is a surprise sort of thing um what can people do so obviously this one flight has been stopped but it was literally hours or days um the day afterwards the government came and said well we're getting ready to do the next one like that's calm we've got we got to get ready to resist again do you know mm. what i mean like yeah of course i think there's there's never sort of like one thing you know for us to do because your listeners will be you know loads of different people there might be people listening to you guys who work you know as lawyers, there might be people who have the capacity to be community organisers, you know, people like me who kind of work editorially. So for me personally, my, you know, takeaway from this would be to kind of, you know, ask people to engage in more critical thinking. Um, but I think everyone needs to... Why is that funny? <laughs> it's funny because it's, it's like, have common sense. Basically, yeah, I people. mean, I get, I get, I get what you mean, but then it's like, <laughs> like have got no, but he's so right. Like, have yeah. common no, sense. It sounds so. No, it's beyond common sense though, because you have to remember that we've been lucky enough to, you know, do masters at like really good. No, yeah, that's true, 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 true. And I think people's kind of opinions or you know lack of education about subjects to me, it's more of an indictment of the education system than themselves, yeah. really. Mm. I think if, if you live in a country and the average person believes things that are absurd, to me it's an indictment of the of the political commentary and the education system. Yeah. Because if no doubt that you regurgitating things they hear from those bodies. So I think those are who should be the kind of um, what's the word? Recipients of our bio, so to speak. Yeah. But yeah, I'd say for me, I just ask people to ask themselves a few questions. If you genuinely believe that migration or asylum seekers or foreign people, whoever it is, in the course of the denigration of Britain, ask yourself, over the past 20 years, as we've gotten more and more far right on these issues, have your economical lived experiences improved? Mm-hmm. Because if they haven't, then, you know, that methodology doesn't work. First and foremost, that would be what I'd want people to ask themselves. Um, and I suppose... A closing question would be, is the government or the right-wing commentary are criticising human rights lawyers or people who try to stop charter flights, etc., etc.? Just ask yourself rationally, 
Who do you think cares about you more between human rights lawyers or a party who voted against feeding children? Yeah. <laughs> you can think of that common sense thing about you. Yeah. That kind of comes back into play. But again, like, I think you're totally right in terms of saying that. I think... It's brainwashing. Yeah, like, that's, you, you, it's exactly what it to is. To a certain extent, you can't be angry at people for being ignorant. I think you can be angry at people once they've had it put right in front of them in plain sight being told yeah. and then they continue to act in a certain way or believe a certain thing um but yeah it's such a difficult one in it like who do you put the blame on like the body politic or the ones who or the policy makers right because if you understand like the 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 media kind of industry is such a formidable like apparatus um and you're asking kind of like ordinary citizens to really kind of have to go against that like we can't actually understand like how much how formidable and how pervasive like i'm gonna call it brainwashing in my opinion um how formidable and how pervasive it actually is um and, and as martin has said like we're not relying on the british education system to actually teach us like real British history, you know, the history of empire, the history of racism, the history of slavery. Um, so people, unfortunately, do have to take it upon themselves to educate themselves and to ask themselves seemingly obvious questions, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or well, just look at your material circumstances, you know, mm. all the policies that are being enacted, apparently in your name and your interests, objectively making anything better. Yeah. Generally, obviously, no. But, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, 100. Yeah. Probably going to round things off there, but thank you, Martin, for coming on again. It's been a Thanks. pleasure, as always. Um, do you want to just let people know where they can find you and your work? Um, yeah, so on my Instagram, which is underscore Martin Awoma, uh, my website, martin-awoma.com, and, yeah, that is the extent of that. I'm sure I'll be back on the show sometime when there's something else to complain about. I'll see you next week, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah just want to join us a permanent cast. Uh, well, well, thanks for thank coming you. on, babes. Love you. Kiss, kiss. <laughs> yes, guys, what's good? You're tuned into Mango Masala, Pi Radio's South Asian show. My name's Gerns. I'm joined here by Simran. Hey, guys. We also have a special guest DJ Joy to the world, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you, how are you guys? Good, yes, nice to have you on the show, finally, it's been a long time coming, so... I know, thanks for having me. No, thank you. So we're going to get into chatting to you about everything relating to Pride, your DJing, all of that in a bit, but first of all, I just want to catch up with Simran because we had a bit of drama last week with her... um, park life accommodation situation so for context um, joy i don't know if you know or any listeners that might not have heard last week but sim well why don't i let you you tell us simran in the short 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 as possible oh my god so literal definition of like worst case scenario airbnb nightmare but we have had this airbnb booked in um manchester for like a year like we've had it booked for so long and we got there it was okay it wasn't it was whatever like it wasn't like the nicest place in the world but it would do the job like for park life you know we just need somewhere to like get ready and sleep um anyway it got to like 11 o'clock at night and there was two mice in the kitchen and i just remember looking at them and just saying to my friend yeah we need to go we got our stuff so fast and we sat in the car 
mind at 11 o'clock at night on some sketchy like side street with no hotel like nothing nowhere to stay and we were so scared we were so stressed out um it was like literally the definition of a nightmare and then I was on the phone with Carlos like messaging him and I was like uh, we're having this Airbnb mare like do, do you know anywhere that we can stay bless Carlos was like you come stay at our apartment and I was like at, at one point we were like yeah we actually might have to um it was so bad but luckily we after a lot of calling probably every hotel in Manchester we finally got a hotel which ended up being really nice and a lot better than the B&B was in the first place um and yeah so it actually worked out for the better but that an hour and a half period on Friday night I've not felt stressed like that and I was trying so hard to like keep it cool because my friend was stressed but in the back of my head I was like we could be really screwed here Uh, it was bad well at least everything turned out for the best and tell me as well I've literally avoided asking you like how it was but tell me how was part life for you like how did you find it Oh, I literally, I'm a different person. I actually think it changed my life. Without being, like, really cliche and corny about it, I think it changed my life. Like, it was so good. Like, it it just really made me realise, like, how much music, like, connects people. And, like, you're just in a crowd. And to be fair, like, you might not know the person that's performing that well. Other people around you might not either. But just the vibe, the crowd, like, everyone just having a good time... It was just like serotonin. The whole thing was like a core memory. It was literally like, it was unreal. The vibes were unreal. Like we saw some really good acts. I need to talk about Tyler, the creator. Tyler, the creator. Tyler, the creator's first UK show since Theresa May banned him 10 years ago for having satanic lyrics and inciting riots at his concerts. Mind, I was a massive Tyler stan back in my day, like, massive Tyler stan and then he was talking about how much he hates Theresa May and how he got banned and how he's back blah 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 and then he was like oh we're gonna do like old school songs and he did like all of these like old school songs and I lost my mind and I was crying and then all my friends have these videos of me in the crowd I'm literally just like staring at Tyler like (laughs) (laughs) it was I haven't even processed it yet and it's been like a week (laughs) I'm really glad that you had a good time, especially after everything that happened just before. Oh yeah, it's it kind of I kind of do did forget that that all that mouse stuff happened, <laughs> and like we even went to that Airbnb in the first place. I think we were so busy, like it was literally eleven p.m. and we were like, we have to be in Heaton Park tomorrow morning. Like in a few hours, we were like, we oh not good, not good. But it all worked out, and Park Life was absolutely amazing. But my legs still hurt. We did thirty thousand steps both days. Do you say you're much of a festival person, Joy? Not really, not going to lie. I was when I was, like, 18. I was going to, like, wireless, places like that. But I can't deal with the portaloos. Like, if my Airbnb was, like, two minutes from the festival, I'm I'm there. But if I've got to use a portaloo, then absolutely not. So, no, I'm not. Listen, I'm not going to lie. The the things I saw in some of those toilets, (laughs) I don't even want to go into detail, but I will never forget. (laughs) <laughs> the thing is Simon as well you had such good weather like the whole weekend mm. I was thinking like oh my gosh it's so nice but you had the breeze as well like it didn't rain like yeah, yeah weather was perfect because it wasn't too hot or anything we had like jumpers on for most of it like especially like past six o'clock we just had like our jumpers and jackets on because it was like not not cold cold but like enough to like have a little jumper like it was nice 
Weather was perfect. It wasn't raining. We all bought wellies. Yeah. And it didn't rain. But that's the thing, like, it literally, if it does rain, it just goes complete, like, havoc. Like, uh-uh. much worse than, like, the port of Lewis. Like, I think we would have been really miserable if it had rained. Yeah. Worked out for the best, definitely. Yeah. But, yeah, enough about us and Manchester and Simran and Park Life. Joy, um, time to focus a bit on you. So, um... Obviously, DJ Joy to the World, you're a DJ. Do you want to just tell us, like, a little bit about yourself in a nutshell? Yeah, sure. So I am DJ Joy to the World, otherwise known as Joy. Family call me Joey and government calls me Joyita. Um, I am a radio producer and DJ from Hertfordshire. I am of Bengali Indian heritage. And my current obsession right now is Doja Cat. I can't get enough of her. I'm like so, so obsessed. I love her artistry. I love her dancing. I love her quirkiness, just everything about her. And apart from that, you can probably find me lying down 70% of the time. So my spirit animal is probably a sloth. So that's me in a nutshell. I'm sorry, that was the best intro we've ever had on the show. (laughs) That was so concise and it was so like so much in one yeah. sense i love that <laughs> but um Thanks did doja so cat didn't she is she is she quoting music or has she gone back on that apparently that was an april fool's joke but i believed it oh, oh. i didn't even see that did it, where was I that on that instagram it, it it was like news and i remember like you know like complex and, and pages like that were posting like oh doja cat's quitting music and then i said it literally last week to my friend she was like that was april fool's I was like, oh, oh it was it? Thank God. I don't know. I wouldn't have been able to I, w- I was sad. I-, I love her. I literally love her. Do you? Oh, yeah. good. Apparently she lived in a, um, like a Hindu monastery for like four years of her life with her mum. No way. And she knows Bharatanatyam dancing from that. So that's why like a lot of her movement is that kind of influenced. Yeah. I can, yeah, I can kind of see that now. Now that you said it, yeah. like I-, I get it. It makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I really love her. I think she's a, a, an amazing woman. Mm, definitely. So talented. Mm. Even though she's mainstream, she's like mm. so iconic. Speaking of icons, going back to you. Um, so DJing, um, how did you get into that? Because it's relatively recent thing for you, right? Only the past couple of years. Yeah, that's right. So I only started DJing in like May 2020. And that was when it was lockdown one. I just finished working because I was made redundant. And so I had my decks for like a year before that and I just didn't have the time to like touch it at all. And so lockdown came around, wasn't working. So I was like, okay, let me just pick these decks up and just see what it's about. Um, And because no one was doing anything, I was like, okay, I've got all the time in the world. Let me just watch some YouTube videos, teach myself how to DJ. And after like a couple of months, I was like, oh, I'm pretty good at this. And so it just started to grow from there. Started releasing mixes. My friends were like, oh, you're pretty good, you know? And I was like, yeah, I am. And then just started putting myself out there on social media, started getting spotted by different people, by different radio stations, got asked to do guest mixes, got asked to do sets. And ever since then, it's just been growing and growing. So it's been a whirlwind and it's all happened really quickly. But I'm super, super grateful. Yeah, no, definitely. I think considering that you've only been in this for like what, just over two years, like you have yeah. achieved quite a lot with it. Yeah, um, definitely. So, in regards to the stuff that you usually um, do when you're DJing, I'd say from what I've heard, it's mainly like R and B focused. 
Um, but then obviously in your producer role, you've done quite a lot of stuff with Asian Network. Yeah. Um, would you say that even if you're not necessarily um, using music from South Asian background, that this is still something that's important to you, like your ethnic heritage? Um, and do you like try to incorporate it into your work at all? Or is it just something that you sort of have in the back of your mind? Yeah, it's definitely something that's come into the forefront on my mind over the last couple of years. Because growing up, I grew up in quite like a white area in Hertfordshire. So a lot of the time I was quite embarrassed about my Bengali Indian heritage. But it wasn't until like uni where I met my best friend who was quite Indian, quite into her Indian culture. And she was the one who introduced me into like all the songs and the films. And I was like, oh, it's actually pretty cool. Like I shouldn't be embarrassed of this. So um, yeah, it's only quite recently that I've been into my Indian um, heritage and more and more so it's become more important to me. Just because I feel like Indian heritage and South Asian heritage isn't isn't looked as being cool, whereas Indian mm. culture is cool. And so over the couple of years, I've been quite dedicated into like proving, not even proving, just showing off how South Asian culture is cool and like the amazing culture that we have, the amazing food we have, the amazing music we have. And so when I started DJing, I do, I have started to put to the forefront more South Asian artists and showcasing more female South Asian artists because there's just not enough of them out there and they are so talented. So I think, yeah, over the probably two years or so, ever since my best friend from uni has got me into it and just said, oh, you don't need to be embarrassed. There's nothing to be embarrassed of. And so it's showing me that there are so many amazing things about Indian culture. Um, as time is going on, I'm embracing my culture even more and more. On that note, obviously you talked about um, female artists, South Asian female artists. Obviously the DJing industry, like a lot of um, industries, I would say is probably male dominated. So, or certainly in terms of like the opportunities that are out there, a lot of them will probably go to um men if not white men as well so obviously mm -hmm. as a south asian female dj how have you found it like because obviously you have like we said you have achieved quite a lot within the space of two years but obviously i would have thought that it would have been quite a hard industry and space to actually navigate so how have you managed to achieve what you have it has been hard but it's also not been hard it's been hard because you have like parents saying, oh, you need a proper job. How are you going to be a DJ? It's not a proper career. So I've had that sort of in the back of my mind that oh, my parents aren't like over the moon about it. But then most people that I come across day to day when I tell them I'm a DJ, they're like, oh my God, it's so amazing. You're a female South Asian DJ. Like we don't see much of that. So I think, um, yeah, it's because I've got a lot more confidence within myself and um, I'm not ashamed of anything and um i do feel like a lot of males get the first opportunity because when i walk into like clubs and bars and sports shops a lot of the time i do see males in there a lot of white males and it's got to the point where i go up to the manager i'm like why don't you have any any females in there and they're just like oh um yeah we've got someone booked in next month like they they don't know what to say but it gets to a point where you're like, this is taking the mick. Like we're, I'm just seeing men constantly at every single venue. There are so many females out there. Like yeah, there's probably not as many female DJs, South Asian female DJs as there are male, but they are there. It just takes people a little bit more effort to find them. So it, it does become frustrating when I see like 
the same DJs on the lineup, the same type of guys in sports shops and bars and stuff. Um, but to me, it's all about just questioning people and just asking why, where are all the females? Because they're there. And when they, they probably don't even think about it themselves, they probably ne it's never popped into their minds. Oh, maybe I should get a South Asian female or a female DJ. So to me, it's all about starting up that conversation. And for me, it's not been too hard. I've found quite a lot of opportunities, but, but I think that's because I am so vo vocal and I'm not afraid to like make people feel uncomfortable and ask them questions like, why not? Why aren't you doing this? Yeah. So um, it's hard. Yes and no. Yeah, I feel like there we, we sort of need people like you to sort of maybe pave the way for future DJs, female DJs, South Asian DJs, that sort of thing, who maybe aren't as confident. Hopefully they'll be able to get those opportunities without needing to like sort of elbow barge people to be like, look like, take me seriously exactly. sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So obviously when we were thinking about getting you on the show, and one of the reasons why I thought, oh, this would be a good time is because it's June and it's Pride Month. Um, and obviously I am aware that you are part of the LGBTQ plus community. Um, do you mind just telling us a little bit about that and how you were able to become um, a bit more comfortable and confident in your sexuality? Because again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like this is maybe certainly you being as comfortable and confident is something that's been quite recent right like not like a couple of years ago or yeah you yeah. tell us yeah it's only been like a couple of years since I've been like really confident about posting on my Instagram about my about my sexuality but growing up I've always been attracted so I'm bisexual I've always been attracted to women and actually before I was attracted to men I was attracted to women and I remember growing up like thinking oh my god I hope I'm not gay. I don't want to be gay. And then as I got to like 16, 17, all my friends were talking about guys. And so I was only thinking about men. And so I thought, okay, I'm straight. Don't worry. So I was only dating guys. I got into my first relationship, which was with a male. And so liking women just was pushed to the back of my mind, I guess, into my subconscious. I wasn't thinking about it. And so for a long time, I was like, okay, I'm not gay, not into women. I'm straight. And then... I broke up with my boyfriend and that's when it started like to resurface into my mind like okay I, I probably was right I probably am attracted to women um and then I just I started to just read more not even about um sexuality just started reading more about politics about race and just reading more and becoming more intelligent and more confident with, within myself just made me more confident about my sexuality and everything in turn um, and then it wasn't until I started DJing and started meeting other lesbians because growing up, I was never surrounded by any other gay people because they were probably just all in the closet. And so going into the music industry and meeting other gay individuals who are like openly gay, just sort of really, it was like, it cemented the fact that, yeah, I am into women. And so that was when I was like, okay, yeah, all these people are open to being gay. Like, why should I be so embarrassed about it? And that coupled with like my um, just being more um, intellectually like aware of everything like politics, race, sexuality, that in turn just made me more confident to just live my true self. So it's only, yeah, since I started DJing, that is when I became like properly confident, confident about myself and just wanting to like show off like this is who I am. If you don't like it, then that's your problem. That's really cool. I've never thought about how you like 
reading like you said about not even stuff maybe even relating to your sexuality actually just made you a lot more confident in yourself and just being yourself because ultimately obviously sexuality is a thing but it's like it's it's not as tangible as we add black and white as we like to make it so just like at the end of the day it's just you being you and it's nice that you are now in a position where you're able to be a little more confident about that um obviously we talked a bit about you being um south asian individual um and i think we all know that not just in regards to like sexuality gender but it and a lot of things um the stereotype is that um growing up in a south asian household there's a lot of pressure to like confine to the the norm essentially and like oh what will they think that sort of thing um so how have you found that obviously because the past couple of years so you're in like mid to late 20s now right so like you're adult adult basically um but still i feel like as a south asian individual we still sort of like even at this age sort of have it in our minds like thinking like oh but like I still need to do right by my parents. I don't want to stress them out, that sort of thing. Um, so what's your personal experience been like? So I think over the, well, since I was growing up, I was always thought, do what your parents want you to do. Make sure you don't shame them. Make sure they're always going to be proud of you. Um, and that was always just instilled in me. So for a long time, I had that in the back of my mind. But it just got to the point where I thought, I need to just live my life and whatever makes me happy. So coming out to them was quite difficult. They were obviously not over the moon about it because when they were growing up, they were never with anyone who was openly gay. And that was never taught to them that it was okay to be gay. And so they've never been used to that sort of um, sort of situation or sort of um, surrounding. So we can't really expect our parents to be okay with it straight away. And I, I think my, well, my parents, they can be quite emotional. I think with a lot of brown parents, they can be quite reactive and quite emotional and they can just say whatever they want to say without thinking about the other person's feelings. So I did have to deal with that, but because I know that this must've been such a shock for them because they raised three daughters, they had like a vision of, okay, they're all going to grow up. They're going to have a great job. They're going to get married and have kids. And when one child like completely knocks that off course, it just like completely catches them off guard, which I understand. So it just takes like patience and kindness and communicating properly to, to like lead them through the process because it is going to be quite a hard process for them. So I think for me, just telling them that I was bisexual and saying I'm probably going to get married to a woman it was a shock to them, but I know that they're not going to disown me or anything like that. I know they're probably going to make some hurtful comments, but it's just a part of their shock and that I just need to give them time, um, give them time to process it and just time heals. So you just got to be, um, you got to be understanding in these kind of situations and know yeah. that they've just grown up in a different time. Yeah, I think it's very interesting that you take that approach with it, the kind of like more gentle approach. I think it's very easy like for people in our generation to expect that, okay, fair enough, they're not going to agree, but then they're wrong for not agreeing, but not understanding why they don't agree, just because we haven't had that same upbringing where it was quite taboo to be openly um, 
well that open about your sexuality if you weren't um heterosexual do you know what i mean so i think it's quite refreshing to hear uh, the taking the perspective of like let's understand why they might be apprehensive or unsure or confused about it and yeah they might say some hurtful things but at the end of the day like if you're going to get through it if you, you need to see it as like a process and they will get, come out the other end of it you know hopefully that they're happy with you and like you know their, under, their understanding of it and they're, they're accepting of it but it's it's gonna take time you know you can't expect them to like be like super accepting of it straight away maybe um and there's reasons for that and I think it's refreshing to hear that because I think it's very easy to just get angry especially if someone might be reactive and say something hurtful and not taking the time to understand why they're saying that hurtful thing or what led them to like believe the way well think the way they think I think ultimately you just like you have been doing don't fight fire with fire because if they're reacting um emotively and then you react emotively it's just gonna be like a tennis thing back and forth back and forth like and not gonna actually get anywhere though i'm really glad to hear that though because i remember when we first met i don't think you had come out at that point no, and no. so I'm, I'm glad to hear like that it is in a better place now and like moving yeah. forward definitely yeah it's a work in progress Mm-hmm. that's all it takes yeah so a bit like on the flip side of that now so you we've obviously spoken um a bit about what you as an indiv- individual have like taken upon yourself to be like almost like more mature and understanding um of how your parents or the community would react to um you coming out but what do you think south asian communities in general can do like not even necessarily adults, but also, like, younger generations as well. Like, what can people do in order to move into a place where um, LGBTQ plus people feel like they can come out and they are accepted, that sort of thing? That's a tough one. I would probably say make sure you're setting boundaries with family members. So just being clear, if someone's going to make a hurtful comment to you, you need to make it clear that's not okay and that you need to apologize and that you're going to take time away from them until they're ready to apologize. And for me, that's what I found has been quite good, just setting your boundaries and just making sure you're clear with what is and isn't okay. So I think that's one thing that we can do um, to help other LGBTQ communities. Um, Another thing is just surround yourself with, so for example, on your social media feed, just make sure it's all positive about LGBTQ communities. So make sure you're following drag queens or um, LGBTQ communities or transgender individuals who help you to embrace your identity. Um, So I think those two things are really important um, to help um, the South Asian community sort of accept more is to set clear boundaries and know when to say no and say, no, this is hurting my feelings. Um, and also having clear communication, make sure you're talking about feelings and make sure you're not shutting off your feelings from one another. Cause I think that's another big thing that I've learned throughout all of this is that you need to make sure you're talking to each other, make sure you're talking to each other about your feelings and um, what's going on and what you think has been, um, what you once thought was okay and what you don't think is okay. It's just having that two way conversation is important. And yeah, making sure your feed is full of um, positive LGBTQ um content i think like it's all about 
creating like safety, a place where people feel like safe enough and comfortable enough and open enough to speak about these things and go to go into like depth about what might be affecting them or making them happy or making them sad or anything. And like you said, like social media is such a powerful tool. So making that like a safe place and a positive and uplifting community, not even just to even for like heterosexual people to view um, like, uh, content creators that belong to the LGBTQ plus community, even them for to view that content and engage with it is still creating a wider community of like people that are just accepting of it. And then for the next generation, it just becomes a lot more normalized, and we don't have to have difficult conversations all the time. And it you know becomes it just will like flow more seamlessly into like what's like accepted and what's the standard. I think as well, like it's a bit with regards to what you're saying about keeping it positive on like your social media and stuff, I think um you find a similar thing with um I think race as well. Um I think there's a lot of um there's because obviously we live in the world where so much racism still exists and happens, there's a lot of scope for you to remain um politically active and aware, but then sort of bring yourself down in the process without realizing that you can be anti-racist but also just that doesn't mean filling your feed with like loads of like keeping yourself aware with like the latest or it doesn't just mean that keeping yourself aware of the latest goings on etc it also means just embracing like and loving um people um all people of color like um all cultures that sort of thing like it's just about keeping it um like just loving that as well and just making sure turning it into literally into a positive thing which i think we're a bit guilty of as well maybe we we need to do a bit more celebrating <laughs> rather than moaning all the time but it's hard when you've got only two hours <laughs> to fit in everything that goes on but um yeah um moving on to your current relationship which um, I believe it's also your first um, lesbian relationship as well that you're currently in. Um, a lot of stuff going on here, right? Because obviously we've talked about how you've had to come quite a long way to accept and be comfortable in yourself as a South Asian female member of the LGBTQ plus community. And now you are also in an interracial relationship, which then also has um, a notable age gap between the two of you as well. So it's like another two things are like thrown in there. So like, how, how have you found that then, especially considering it's your first in lesbian relationship as well? Um, it's been difficult, not gonna lie. Um, so I met my current partner. So I was doing a radio show um, with a company and um, they were trying to find uh, find DJs for this company and she found me for this radio show. And so that's how we met. Um, and there's, so she's 41, I'm 27. So there's 14 year age gap and we met through work. So there's all these different things. She's also in recovery. She's been sober for six years, which is amazing. Um, and so, yeah, it's been quite up and down. It's been difficult because I can't just treat it like a normal relationship that I've had before, a normal straight relationship. Um, I need to be a lot more patient, a lot more, a lot, a much more better at communicating, which I'm not used to. I feel like I can be quite explosive and just like react and be angry, which I can't do in this relationship because 
my partner's just not used to that. And because she's in recovery, she's used to communicating in a different way because she's been to rehab and all these different things. Um, so it's been hard because she just, because when we first got together, I sort of had like a bit of a meltdown, like, oh, this is too scary. Like I've never been with a girl before. This is going to be too much. And so I sort of ended things, which is obviously, I, I acted upon my own feelings, but I didn't take into consideration another person's feelings and someone else's feelings got hurt. But I'm quite lucky in the fact that she's very understanding and um, we, we're both quite patient. So um, yeah, it's been up and down, but we've both learned from each other and we've both grown with being with each other. And she was the one who found me for radio. So I've literally got her to thank for my whole career, like my DJ and radio career, like I would not be here without her. And she just taught me so much about myself, how to be more patient, how to communicate more positively, um, just how to be more kinder. So yeah, I literally would not be here without her. So we both put in a lot of hard work to be where we are today, but it's been so worth it. So yeah, I'm very thankful for her, very grateful for her. And I would think as well, like considering like the company that you met through that with regards to the interracial relation um, side of things, she would be very like understanding of like any um, potential barriers or hurdles that you've had to jump throughout your relationship sort of thing. Because I think that fr- from it's my understanding that that is something that's quite common um, in um, homosexual relationships. Um, um, particularly in um, interracial ones um, where the white partner will obviously they understand what it's like to be gay and um, that they have had to potentially overcome hardship as a result of it but then they maybe won't take into consideration the fact that you then have this extra element of all intersectionality idea of like you you've um, got sexuality to consider but then also race as well um but like i said um i'm presuming that that has been um it's been good to have someone who actually understands that and is like willing to be patient in that respect as well yeah definitely i mean she's half irish half half south american and she's had partners who are from all over the world so she's had experience of all different cultures and how their parents can be so she is very understanding through experience about how hard it can be so it just Mm -hmm. takes experience and understanding and kindness to sort of appreciate what your partner can be going through and just being there for them and just being a good partner really mm-hmm. obviously as um, yourself being someone who is bisexual and you've said about how you were in a relationship that was heterosexual before mm-hmm. um so you've got first-hand experience for comparison of what it's like to be with a guy and what it's like to be with a girl and I'm presuming that you probably have maybe noticed like quite a few differences and maybe how that's perceived by um, not just you, like your friends and family, but just general public, like being out and about as a couple. Yeah, definitely. I've noticed that quite a lot. So just like walking around, holding hands with my partner, I can just feel men's gazes. Like I've got quite a good gut feeling and quite a good like sixth sense almost. So I can tell like, what kind of look they're giving us and it's like a weird like oh you should be ashamed this is disgusting but also like I kind of like it sort of look from them so they're very confused obviously and it just I'm I often get to the point where I want to say something to them but my my partner's like no just relax like you're going to get this all the all the time but 
it's quite frustrating knowing that it's a lot of men from the brown community especially that seem to have an issue with it and like I, I don't find it's the same with um men from other um races um, or backgrounds or women even it's, it's it's a lot of the brown males that i find look at you in a particular way or they're like make a comment underneath un, under their breaths um so i think as a a brown south asian community we have a lot to do in terms of educating our men and sort of teaching them like why they can't make these sort of comments and just educating them as to women can live their own lives like you, you shouldn't be looking at them in a certain way you shouldn't be making comments and so that's one thing that's probably the biggest thing that's been uncomfortable for me is um the way that men sort of view me compared to was compared to when I was with I was in a straight relationship when I was in a straight relationship no one would bother me but all of a sudden when I'm holding hands with the girl they they like get excited they get annoyed all these different emotions because they probably don't know like what emotion to feel themselves so they then offlay their emotions onto us it's it's not fair and it's like knowing like when to say something when to not say something you don't want to get into trouble like you don't know what they could do to you you don't know when you can like get hurt um so it's a difficult situation to be put in and i think we just need to make more of like more of an effort to educate these men and let them know that this is not okay to even just look at us in a certain way and just keep your eyes to yourself basically yeah i mean obviously we're not even condoning the thoughts or disapprove or whatever that they are might be thinking but even then even if they are thinking that what is it that gives them the right or what's the need to then vocally express that or act on it if you're going to have those sort of negative thoughts which obviously i'm saying that you shouldn't do but if you are going to have them like just keep it to yourself like literally what is the need like it's like this thing that we have in the in the brown community of like the ownership over women's lives and women's actions and the kind of like thing of on one hand we have such a beautiful community that is so tight-knit and strong and there's so many connections and similarities between the different countries and cultures and stuff like that which is beautiful but it's created such a sense of community of like people feel comfortable enough to relay their opinion about everything and anything on everyone else and anyone else and most of the time that will be negative things and then it's like that whole the culture of like what will people say and gossip culture and stuff like that and then how that would get around it's kind of like the entitlement <laughs> yeah it's the entitlement sure well any brown men listening you heard it do better, do better. you heard it here yeah. first yeah do better <laughs> going on to a bit more of like a general topic obviously like i said june is pride month um i think i you know what i I think uh, it's been a bit toned down this shit. I don't think I've seen that, that 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 many rainbows around. No. Um, no. <laughs> which is interesting because I was going to ask like do you think that the um, commercialization of it has sort of maybe reduced its message and impact but actually yeah for the I'm now I'm thinking about it because normally it's like all the like restaurants and everything will like redecorate and everything or bring out special drinks or whatever but it's actually been quite dead this month from my perspective yeah it has been toned down and i feel like maybe it has lost some of its impact like when you see a pride flag it probably doesn't invoke a conversation as much as it used to but on the other hand i feel like the commercialization of it has helped because things like um shows like RuPaul's Drag Race are such a far reach that it just reaches people across the world who 
feel like they can't embrace their sexuality and now they can because RuPaul is so commercialized now and so mainstream. So for example, my little cousin who's seven years old, if RuPaul's Drag Race wasn't so commercial, he wouldn't he wouldn't know about RuPaul's Drag Race and he wouldn't be able to um, live his authentic self without it. So I think it has lost in its impact in terms of it doesn't sort of incite a conversation or a reaction like it used to, but I think because it's so commercial, we just see it everywhere and it's just becoming more of the norm now. And so people just see, for example, maybe a drag queen or um, an LGBTQ community and they're just like, well, there's nothing different now. It's They're just used to it. So I think there are two sides of it, but I think it's more positive than it is negative. Yeah, I was going to say like kind of coming off what we spoke about earlier as well, I suppose that is kind of the end goal is that we don't have to like bring awareness to these things anymore or like bring light to any struggles because there won't be any more struggles in an ideal world. And it will be so normalised to the point where like we don't, it's not even a diff. It's, there's no difference to to anyone, whether someone um, is gay or straight or bisexual or transsexual or anything. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I suppose in one sense, what I think because we're not there yet, it's nice to still have big Pride Month like recognition and gestures and stuff like that, and obviously like throughout the year as well. But I suppose in a, in one sense of the word, like the main goal would be like to get to a point where it's so normalised. Yeah. yeah, and like things like things like RuPaul drag, RuPaul, RuPaul's Drag Race help. Yeah, a lot helps a lot. Definitely, I think it is like when when you're obviously you're saying this, it's not the same as like you know people who, for example, be like, oh, I don't see color and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, that's that's counterproductive. But this is like, it's sort of like we're moving towards a world where you would be able to say that well yeah obviously we're not there yet but like mm-hmm. obviously that's where we want to be obviously i think this has actually been such like a good conversation like i've really enjoyed um, having it um but there might be people out there um who have a south asian background who maybe aren't so comfortable in their sexuality might be struggling um do you have any sort of advice um, advice for them maybe for example thinking about your past in 20 odd years yeah, I would say, as I mentioned before, set really clear boundaries between your friends and family. Let them know what is okay and what is not okay, what comments are fine and what isn't fine. Um, making sure your feed is full of positive LGBTQ communities, um, full of uh, full of positive LGBTQ individuals. So you should be following people like Lucky Roy Singh, who is an amazing drag queen, um, Shivarai Chandani, who are some other LGBTQ uh, people they could be following? Just look at DJ Joy to the World's following list. DJ Joy to the World. Make sure you follow <laughs> yeah, me as yeah. well. And if anyone is struggling, make sure... If anyone is struggling, you can reach out to me, DM me at any time. I'm more than happy to help you out with any struggles that you are having. So just keep positive, keep reading, keep educating yourself on everything, on every topic that will make you more confident within yourself and more confident to have conversations with people. So yeah, just keep living your best self. Don't don't give in. Don't feel ashamed of yourself because you have nothing to feel ashamed about. There's more of us out here. There's so many of us out here. Going um back to just you in general, like obviously this is a big part of you, but doesn't necessarily define you as such. You're a DJ in your own right. Um, you're a creative. You're a radio producer. So like, what have you got planned as an individual for like the near and far future? 
so I've got a few exciting gigs coming up, um, which are in the works at the moment, about to be confirmed. But one event that I do want to mention is a Pride special that's taking place on the 2nd of July at King's Cross in London, Scala. That's the name of the venue, Scala. Um, so if you're in London on the 2nd of July, that's a Saturday, and you're in London enjoying Pride, make sure you come to Scala Pride. I'm going to be in the house room, going to be bringing all the vibes, so make sure you come down. And yeah, I've got loads of other things coming up. So make sure you follow me at DJ Joy to the World to keep in touch with me. All things DJing, all things radio, all things LGBTQ. And as I said, feel free to message me about anything at any time. Thank you. No, thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for coming on. I loved having you. Thanks, guys.